0: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success.
1: The men beat on the
0: drums. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Alex de Waal. We talked about his new book, New Pandemics, Old Politics, 200 Years of War on Disease. We discussed the history of pandemic disease control from the cholera outbreaks of the 19th century to HIV-AIDS and the COVID-19 crisis. We chatted about why the war on disease narrative is so unhelpful how colonial-era vaccination programmes spread HIV in sub-Saharan Africa, and why the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 to is so little discussed and written about, despite its extraordinary death toll. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown by Matthew Lawrence and Laurie Laybourne Langton. As we rebuild our lives in the wake of COVID-19 and face the challenges of ecological disaster, how can the left win a world fit for life? Planets on Fire is an urgent manifesto for a fundamental reimagining of the global economy. It offers a clear and practical roadmap for a future that is democratic and sustainable by design. In the book, Laurie Laybourne Langton and Matthew Lawrence argue that it is not enough merely to spend our way out of the crisis, We must also rapidly reshape the economy to create a new way of life that can foster a healthy and flourishing environment for all. Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown, is out now from Verso Books and part of their April Book Club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Alex de Waal is Executive Director of the World Peace Foundation and a research professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Considered one of the foremost experts on Sudan and Horn of Africa, his books include AIDS and Power, Darfur, A New History of a Long War, and Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. His new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is New Pandemics, Old Politics, 200 Years of War on Disease. If you would like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can access extended versions of regular shows, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. Go to patreon.com forward slash theory other to sign up. So, in the book, you take issue with the kind of military metaphors that are routinely deployed by governments, uh, some health professionals, journalists, and, and political commentators, both in the case of the COVID 19 pandemic, but also regarding other pandemics and, and disease more generally. And of course, we're used to those metaphors being used both at the governmental level. Obviously, we can think back to Richard Nixon's war on cancer, for instance. But then there's also the way individuals suffering from disease are often described as battling infection and, and so on. Could you explain why you think that the war on disease narrative is unhelpful and even perhaps dangerous? It carries with it a huge amount of baggage.
1: If you'd asked anyone 200 years ago whether it made sense to talk about a war on disease, it would have been a a very laughable concept. Disease and war went together. War was a cause of disease. More soldiers commonly died of disease than in battle, and armies carried disease from one place to another. The idea of having a war on disease was a particular creation of thinking about germ theory along with the age of colonial conquest. And in particular, it was Robert Koch, the discoverer of the bacillus that caused cholera, who saw what he was doing as part and parcel of the imperial project, really, of conquering the face of the globe. So it was in in, in the 1880s at the zenith of European imperialism and the idea that the white man would go out and classify, conquer, control, subjugate, have dominion over every piece of territory on, on the globe, every people, every forest, every mountain and every microbe and conquer it. And the war on disease really emerged from that. And it sort of gels with the, with the, the very useful metaphor of the, the body's defence mechanisms against pathogens, bacteria, and viruses. But when it is used in the context of the body politic, it has a number of problems. The first of which is that it can be very readily used as a, as a pretext for xenophobia Authoritarianism, crackdown, etc., can also be used to justify or think un- unthinkingly about a technologically driven approach to the efforts to control disease. And it obscures the way in which ecological and scientific thinking has actually moved on about really what disease is, where it comes from, and how it can be controlled.
0: So would you say in that earlier period, before the 19th century, that disease was really seen as akin to natural disasters, and so the notion of a war on disease would make about as much sense as talking about going to war with a flood or a hurricane?
1: I think that's a fair summary, yes. There were many different traditions for how, of how one saw disease, but it would make no more sense to declare war on disease than it would to declare war on the weather.
0: I'm going to come on to the chapter on cholera in particular in in a moment, but first just regarding the deployment of those military metaphors in the current circumstances. So... How widely has that narrative been deployed around COVID? And, and do you think that that kind of rhetoric necessarily correlates with the use of the more draconian lockdown measures? I mean, clearly it did in the case of the Wuhan lockdown. We saw both a lot of militarised talk, but also those very tough restrictions. But do you think that's generally been the case? And, and could you say something on the variation internationally in, in using the military narrative?
1: Well, the, the war on disease narrative has gone through different phases over, over the years. And the most uh, pervasive current one really dates to the turn of the millennium. And what happened there was that in the 1990s, as um, infectious disease scientists were getting more and more concerned about what they called emerging and re emerging pathogens and potential new pandemic threats. They were trying to get the air of policymakers, and it's remarkably difficult to get politicians to pay attention to anything that is not an immediate threat, that is a hypothetical. And in the end, what they, the group that they made common cause with were security analysts, security advisors, who have their own expertise at getting politicians to pay attention to improbable threats. And they do it through scenario role-playing. And in the scenario role-play, you, you it, it's a bit like um, drafting a, a work of fiction. You have to vary some of the parameters of reality, but not others. You can't make it um, too outlandish. You have to make it credible. And there was an exercise that was uh, run in Washington, D.C. in June 2001 called Operation Dark Winter, which had a number of people playing roles of senior politicians with around the outbreak of an infectious disease they, they imagined, smallpox. And it ended with a question mark. It ended with the US government unable to control the spread of this virus and the chaos that was ensuing. And this happened just three months before 9 11, before the terrorist crimes of September the 11th. The parallel between the two was quite striking. And the way in which the George W. Bush administration then operationalized pandemic preparedness was really on the model of the war on terror, which is a model where you identify, you isolate emerging pathogens and you hit them one by one. And you do this precisely in order not to have to deal with with the fact that the reason why that these pathogens are emerging is the disruption to ecology. Industrial farming, chopping down rainforests, disrupting the environments of bats and other animals and so on. And precisely so that we don't have to re-engineer our society and our economy to deal with our vulnerability to transmissible pathogens. So we don't have to shut down air travel, we don't have to redesign our cities, etc. And we are seeing precisely why these are issues now with COVID. So that that was really the war on disease in its in its current model. And those who promoted that model are extremely upset that the Trump administration cast it aside. Um, although, actually, the, the, the British Tory government um, really downscaled its, its interest in that. And their argument is, we could have done a lot better had we applied this model more effectively. And that's true. But of course, that doesn't deal with the deeper problems of the um, Anthropocene, the disruption, the new ecology that we have generated for ourselves and our systemic vulnerabilities. Now, what we've seen with COVID is that some we've some, seen some conventional authoritarians, notably the Chinese, adopting the Marshall metaphor and the Marshall mobilization lock, stock and barrel, sometimes quite effectively, too. We've seen others sort of toying with it. But we've seen it's it's interesting the extent to which the, the Anglo-Saxon governments, Britain and, and the, the US in particular under Trump, really shied away from that. And I think the reason actually is that if you take the martial metaphor seriously, you have to take the organisation and discipline and demands of mobilising on that basis seriously as well and the trump administration in particular simply what didn't want to do that it liked the theatrics of combat of battle but it didn't like mobilizational requirements actually of organizing something akin to a war so i think actually what we've seen interestingly in the case of covid is the limitations
0: of that conventional war on disease script And so would you say that potentially we might actually be rather distant from the real heyday of the war on disease narrative, since, as you say, in in the current moment, many governments have, for various reasons, been reluctant to deploy that kind of language? And and part of that is perhaps because we're living in an era of conspiracy theory and and relative distrust of science and and health professionals. So is it perhaps easier to imagine a much more intensive use of that kind of disease-fighting language in the 1960s or, or 70s, or even as late as the 90s? I'm
1: sure we would have seen it as recently as the George W. Bush administration and we may yet see it coming back. It is still an extremely serviceable metaphor by those who are promoting primarily biomedical technocratic solutions to what are, they are, they are technical problems, but they are also ecological and
0: political economic problems as well. So if we move on to the chapter on cholera, so one of the things you do in the book is you provide these character sketches of diseases. So for instance, you talk about the cholera bacillus as being a kind of pantomime villain. Can you explain what you're getting at in the case of cholera and also why you think personifying diseases in this way is, is useful?
1: A disease does not have deliberate agency. It does not have the characteristics of an individual. Nonetheless, diseases are agents of history. And one of the things that is, I think, very fascinating about the uh, the history of disease and particularly the history of scientific exploration of disease is the way in which every pandemic disease has forced initially scientists and then the general public at some point to rethink the nature of life and the boundaries of the self. So we need to reconfigure not just The medical technologies, but also the way in which we live our lives, we design our cities. Cholera, for example, required a a massive re-engineering, the the whole sanitation of of, of cities. Influenza, had it stayed around, it was really a hit-and-run pandemic, but had it stayed around, it would have required much more fundamental re-engineering of how we treat uh, air circulation and space in our cities and so on. But it also... The analysis of the um, full understanding of the way in which these pathogens operate requires us to recognize that they are actually part of us, part of our ecosystems, but also part of our bodies. And as such, bacteria line the, the, our intestines. We have as many bacteria Within our bodies, as we have cells that are, quotes, ours, viruses are quasi-living things that obviously long predate vertebrates, let alone uh, human beings. And also we have many remnants of extinct viruses within our DNA, within our um, within our genome. so the these pathogens are all part of us. And I think it's important to, to understand that, we, that our agency as human beings is shared with these, with these microbes. And so what I try and do is, is with a little bit of
0: dramatic license to describe how they operate as though they were, they were characters. And specifically on cholera, can you explain what you meant by that description of cholera as a pantomime villain?
1: cholera is a pretty gross disease i mean it, 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 its symptoms are, are, are grotesque you know it, the way it works is that it causes massive diarrhea and vomiting and dehydration and the loss of fluids is such that the body really ceases to have control and ultimately in the last stages of cholera you are reduced to to uncontrollable spasms which may even continue after after death so it is peculiarly horrible. But the, the strategy, this, the, the reproductive strategy of cholera, as well as being causing these vile symptoms, is one of being a chancer. Not everyone who gets um, infected by any means will develop symptoms. People can be symptomless carriers. And it, it has a very crude Way of, of 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 transmitting itself. It's a bit uh, describe it as like a, a chancer stuffing coins into a slot machine, and very occasionally hitting the jackpot where all so many coins spill out that the, that the tray overflows, and then the, the chancer can the gambler can scoop them up and
0: keep stuffing them back into um, other slot machines. So, if we think about the response to cholera in the 19th century, Europe pains in the book to point out how unique each pandemic is and and how it can be very unwise to draw close parallels between them. But I was nonetheless very struck by your description of, of how in the 19th century there was great resistance to imposing quarantine restrictions along the trade routes of Britain's empire in order to protect business. And you have that great quote from the medical journal The Lancet from 1831, where a correspondent writes that the contagion theory of cholera transmission was a humbug got up for the restriction of our commerce and it's hard not to think about the current UK government's obvious reluctance to impose lockdowns because of that perceived trade-off between health impacts and, and damage to the economy when reading uh, that kind of thing. And, and even the language used in that quote is, is kind of reminiscent of Boris Johnson's rhetorical style of speech. Was that a comparison that struck you and, and that you feel is a tool useful? And could you also talk a bit about how the importance of maintaining trade was used to downplay the risk from cholera?
1: You've picked up on precisely the parallel that was the reason I thought of the title for the book, which is New Pandemic's Old Politics, which is that the the pathogen is new and unfamiliar, but the political reflex of our leaders is exactly the same. And, of course, Boris Johnson does look like a, a figure from the early 19th century, except, of course, Britain no longer has has an empire. So, yes, indeed, many of the same dilemmas, political dilemmas uh, recur, and politicians respond in, in, in much the same way. And invariably, those responses which are done by the book, by joining the dots, by formula, are inadequate and don't follow. Don't, they don't follow the science in the sense as they, that they don't follow the the true scientific method of appropriate skepticism and questioning and adjusting policy in, 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 in line with the reality. One of the things we saw particularly in Britain, actually, in in the 19th century, was the extent to which scientific evidence was, or scientific inquiry, was shaped around policy rather than the other way around. So because it was so important for Britain's prosperity, for trade not to be interrupted, the cotton merchants importing From India to Liverpool argued that if ships were forced to quarantine for 40 or 65 days, that delay would make the price of cotton uncompetitive for the manufacturers in Lancashire. And therefore, they insisted that there had to be some other explanation for the transmission of cholera and some other mechanism of control. And Britain actually developed an effective mechanism for control simply by throwing a lot of resources at the problem for sanitation, inspection, etc., without really recognizing the science. But then, as they began to recognize what was effective, the imperial authorities also realized just how expensive it was. And the fact that cholera originated in India, which was under British control, the obvious logical conclusion was that Britain should impose the same measures for cholera control that it had in the metropolis in the colony. And that would have been very expensive. And it would have stood in the way of the massive expansion of irrigated farming that the imperialists were undertaking in order to to extract as much as they could, agricultural production surplus, out of India. Because In particular, cholera-like stagnant water and cheaply built irrigation ditches are the ideal places for standing water to lie and cholera to proliferate. So they didn't want to do any of that. They didn't want to have to um, impose the required um, sanitation and hygiene standards on Indian cities. So basically, they got around it with a theory that Indians were in, in some way backward and un- unhygienic and there was no point in introducing these measures because generations of British colonial officials learned from experience it couldn't
0: possibly be a transmissible, contagious disease. And that form of justification for what they were doing in, in having these two dramatically different responses to cholera east and west of Suez, to what extent was there an outcry about that policy, which obviously contributed to the deaths of, of millions of people?
1: There was outcry in in India, not so much in the UK. There was a general outcry at the conditions of misery that were inflicted on the Indian subcontinent. Not just cholera, but also plague, famine, and general impoverishment, which definitely fueled the Indian nationalist
0: movement. So you talk in that chapter about one of the experts that the British drew on to justify their response to cholera, and that was the German sanitationist Max von Pettenkoffer. And you write about the contrasting approaches of of Pettenkoffer and and Robert Cook, one of the most eminent scientists of the time who was decorated for his success in combating cholera by Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany. Could you explain their differing positions on the question of cholera and contagion? Well,
1: Cook was really one of the most ardent progenitors of of germ theory. He focused on the the pathogen, the the bacillus, as the singular cause of the disease. Von Pettenkoffer had a much broader view. He saw the complexities of who caught disease where, why, and how. And, in fact, his overall theory, which, as he put it, it talks about the X, the Y, and the Z, the, the infectious agent, the conditions, the environmental conditions in which it can exist or proliferate, and the particular susceptibility of the individual as all being components of disease. And generally speaking, he was correct. His fatal error was that regarding cholera, not only was a skeptic about the waterborne theory of transmission... But he actually came rather dogmatically to oppose it and his disciples faithfully implemented his views in a number of places, especially in in, in the city of Hamburg, which contributed to a calamitous epidemic there in the 1880s, when they just refused to implement some rather rudimentary sanitation measures that would have prevented an outbreak of cholera there that cost about 10,000 lives.
0: And today, is Pettenkofer typically, because clearly you're fairly sympathetic to him in, in spite of the errors that he made, but is he generally just seen as, as a kind of denialist on contagion theory now?
1: Well, his, his, sort of the headline of his reputation is, 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 he is the man who was humiliated by denying the, the cholera contagion theory. And that is how he will be remembered in, in history. That said, he, those who, who study the ecology of disease do look upon him with more sympathy 150
0: years on. Clearly a man very committed to, to his theories because you describe how he actually drank a solution containing the cholera virus in order to try and prove his point.
1: Indeed, he was, he was a man of real, real courage in those days. It was sort of de rigueur for physicians who were testing theories of what caused disease to experiment upon themselves, which is not a statistically significant sample, a sample of one, or maybe if you include their associates, in three or four, but certainly... An an act of courage. And he did that, unlike Koch, who never experimented on himself. Van Pattenkoffer did, and he got cholera. He had horrible symptoms, but he survived. And he argued that, and the fact that he survived showed that his more complex theory of the cause of the fatal disease was thereby proven.
0: But it was really too late. He'd lost
1: the political argument.
0: So if we come on to the chapter on the 1918 19 Great Influenza Pandemic, often erroneously described as the the Spanish flu. So you describe that pandemic as the deepest mystery in the history of disease, both in terms of the emergence of the virus that, that caused this incredibly large mass death event, the worst since the Great Plague, but also a bit of a mystery in terms of how little it's discussed and the lack of literature on the topic, especially compared with the First World War, which the pandemic emerged at the end of. On that first point about the, the virus's emergence, so it's most often suggested that it originated in Haskell County, Kansas, in the American Midwest. Can you explain why you think it's unconvincing to believe that Kansas is the point of origin of the pandemic and what you find to be a more persuasive account of the emergence of the great influenza of, of 1918? I think the, the, the likely
1: explanation why Kansas is, is most often cited is because the American records are simply the best. So the Americans have taken the lead in, in in documenting it. The Kansas explanation fails really to explain why the virus as it emerged was so virulent. It just it's a sort of just so story. Well it just so happened that a particularly virulent strain emerged. But even those who attribute it to Kansas, say, well, actually, when it first emerged in Kansas, it wasn't that virulent. It somehow acquired its virulence later on. The origin story has to be an evolutionary story. We have to understand the particular conditions that must exist for a pathogen of any sort to be both extremely transmissible and extremely virulent at the same time, because pathogens tend usually to be one or the other. And the reason for that being that if it's a very virulent, it causes nasty symptoms, it, it disables people you know, in rapidly and in horrible ways. Those people aren't going to move around, so they're not going to be able to transmit it to others.
0: And would SARS be an example of that?
1: SARS is partly an example of that. It's a, it's a disease that tended to burn out quite quickly. Ebola is actually another one that goes through a population very, very fast. The best or, if you like, the worst examples are those that, that occur in hospitals, which are well adapted to an environment in which people are, are static in the hospital. And are kept there because they have nasty symptoms and therefore those infections are well adapted to having particularly virulent symptoms because that is precisely how they get to their next um, potentially infected patient. Now, how do you do this with an airborne virus such as influenza? Because normally influenza is relatively mild because in order for it to be transmitted, people have to be mobile, have to move around. But what we had in World War I was an extraordinary sort of micro We had a deliberately engineered environment that had a couple of very, very key unique features that had never occurred before. Um, one of those was the triumph of military medicine which meant that the the war on disease in the sense of the making soldiers sufficiently healthy in order to be able to fight en masse in terrible conditions like the trenches of the West, Western Front. The military medicine was so effective that soldiers could be maintained in conditions that they could never have been maintained before. In previous centuries, they would have died en masse from typhus and cholera and all sorts of other diseases, by 1914, they were protected from those. And then the whole way in which the the movement of troops was organized, so you had troops crammed into the trenches, crammed into trains, crammed into barracks, crammed into troop ships, and systematically rotated around. So the trenches were so stressful that... Units would be posted for two weeks on the front line, then rotated out. So you had this micro environment which meant I mean a large scale micro environment, obviously not the whole globe, but the environment of war meant that a infectious pathogen could evolve that would be perfectly suited to young, fit adult men, which it was, highly transmissible and highly virulent because this was this little sort of pocket of ecology that had been created. And there's quite a lot of evidence from physicians working on the front lines on both sides and the medical records that indicate that the virus actually evolved at the front or, and close to the front on either the German or the, or, or, or the allied side. What is not disputed, that's a rather controversial theory, but I'm, I'm personally quite persuaded by it, what is not controversial is that the war, the mobilization of the war, the troop ships, the supply ships, actually meant that it was transmitted around the world. So here we had a virus that actually emerged from war. And despite the, the most sustained effort to try and find therapies, cures, vaccines during the months of the war, when, when the pandemic was raging, there was no success in fact, the, the influenza virus wasn't identified for years and years afterwards. So it was an abject failure of medicine. So the war on disease script was inverted. And so many people died, obviously, needlessly. And the the authorities who were in charge of the war, most notoriously in the United States, simply didn't want to accept what was going on. President Woodrow Wilson refused To mention influenza. Not once Mm. in his time as president did he mention what was killing many more Americans than than the war itself, precisely because he did not want to have to interrupt the war effort or to um, undermine the morale of troops or, or, or the home front.
0: Thinking about that artificial ecosystem that you describe that was created by the context of the trenches and and the battlefields of the the Western Front and coming up to today, is there anything at all comparable that you can think of in terms of an environment that might be conducive to the emergence of a disease that would combine that very high transmissibility with severe virulence as well? It's, It's hard to think of anything that is quite so precisely
1: engineered for that kind of uh, adaptive mutation by a pathogen. On the other hand, the way we design our cities, the way we design our our industrial farming, the way that international air transport, international tourism, etc., is organised, the way in which ecosystems are being massively disrupted by uh, afforestation. It's hard to think of an ecosystem that is so precisely designed as the Western Front in World War I for the production of a pathogenic mutant with quite those characteristics. But if we scale up to the way in which global production, transport and urbanisation are organised today, we see a slightly diluted version of much the same thing. We see massively disrupted ecologies we see the fact that of the land-based mammalian biomass today, 97% of that land-based mammalian biomass is ourselves and our domestic livestock. And that is an incredibly narrow genetic pool. And any microbe, any pathogen that actually manages to get through to infect ourselves, our cattle, our pigs, our domestic pets, has unwittingly blundered into an extraordinary cornucopia of potential infectious beings. And throughout the the way in which our Anthropocene is organized, is organized by global capitalism, there are innumerable opportunities for pathogens to adapt far more rapidly than our uh, responses, our biomedical responses or our behavioural responses. So in a way, what happened with influenza in World War I is, is a sort of parable for the situation in which we find ourselves today.
0: Going back to the mysterious character of, of the Great Influenza, so you write about how there was a relative dearth of, of literature about the pandemic, both immediately afterwards and then later on, in spite of the extraordinary death toll, greater even than, than the First World War in fact. Why do you think that was the case and, and continued to be the case? Well, it's a pandemic that is sort of everywhere
1: and nowhere. And in some respects, actually, that's rather like COVID-19. And, and so it permeated the experience of everybody. In a way, it was just too big to be handled. And it's a feature of these earth-shattering pandemics that they take many decades, even at centuries actually to to get distilled it was notable for example if you look at the chronicles of the late middle ages how little was written about the great plagues and so something that simply doesn't fit the script like that uh, influenza pandemic is not forgotten it's just forgotten in the official histories it's forgotten in the, in the heroic narratives of the age, but it does recur in literature in oblique ways. It recurs in, in, in so many biographies and in influences the way in which uh, people think about the world and respond.
0: And is perhaps part of it also that, in a sense, the... 1918 pandemic was was sort of immune to the military metaphor in the sense that there wasn't that narrative arc, there wasn't a battle and then a victory, rather the antagonist of, of the conflict just simply vanishes from the stage, so to speak. I think that's
1: absolutely right. I think because insofar as there was a war on influenza, influenza won, retired undefeated, it just didn't make sense. It was a challenge to the both the stories of, of of sort of heroic tragedy of the war uh, because it is essentially a meaningless tragedy and to the it was a challenge to the heroic progress of 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 science and medicine because um, no no cure was was
0: found you've been listening to politics theory other a podcast from tribune magazine if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other pto shows then please consider becoming a supporter you can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll other to sign up. Thanks for listening.